0: Today's episode is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn a 5.1% annual percentage yield with a high yield cash account. And while we can't say for certain that's the highest interest rate out there, we can say that at the time of this recording, that's higher than Robinhood, higher than SoFi, Marcus, Wealthfront, higher rate than Betterment, Capital One, Ally, Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo. think you get the point here. If you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. Full disclosures and terms and conditions can be found in the podcast description, U.S. members only. This is Business Breakdowns. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.
1: This is Jesse Poogee, and today we're breaking down McKinsey & Company, the world's preeminent management consulting firm. Founded in the thick of the Industrial Revolution, McKinsey set about professionalizing the way businesses were managed. An accountant by trade, James McKinsey took inspiration from a range of well-established professions like engineers, doctors, and lawyers to create a new category. Today, some 100 years later, management consultants are entrenched in every part of the global economy and McKinsey continues to lead the field. To break down the business, I'm joined by Romine Sheth, a McKinsey alum and the current president of Metasys Technologies. Please enjoy this business breakdown of McKinsey and Company. We have a really exciting business breakdown today with one of my good friends, Romine Sheth. And it's a particularly fun one because we're breaking down McKinsey & Company, which is a company that both myself and Ramin worked for, I admire, I would say. So I'm really excited about this one. Welcome, Ramin.
0: Jesse, thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun.
1: Let's dive right in. What is McKinsey & Company?
0: McKinsey is the world's preeminent management consulting firm. It's not the biggest, but it's definitely the most well-regarded and respected in the industry. And consulting is a funny word. I mean, it can mean a lot of different things. I think the most simple way to think about it is it's basically the idea of being an advisor to a person or an organization. So somebody has a challenge, they need expertise, maybe they need some support to help solve that challenge. And then they go engage with somebody that has the ability to come in for a specific period of time, maybe shorter, maybe longer, augment their team and provide perspective on how to solve that problem. Management consulting, though, is a pretty specific kind of consulting. It's kind of exactly what it sounds like. It's advising management and the challenge that management faces. So McKinsey's been around for about 100 years or so, and that's kind of the business that they're in.
1: Got it. And can you double-click a little bit, maybe, what does a management consulting thing look like? Walk us through it.
0: So if you go to McKinsey's website, they have this way they describe themselves. They say they're a trusted advisor and counselor to the world's most influential businesses and institutions. So basically... The funny thing about that phrase is it can mean anything, and I think that's intentional. And I think what that opens the door and the opportunity for is when an organization says, hey, we've got a problem, and maybe we haven't faced that problem before. Who do we go ask and how do we get that done? The challenge when you're inside a company or inside an organization is when you see a problem, it's unique to you. You've never done it before. And so McKinsey wants to kind of augment its framing, I'd say, to the market in a way which is, if you have a problem and you haven't faced it before, but you have an inclination that somebody else has, whether it's in your industry, whether it's somewhere else, who are you going to go call when you need help? Management consulting or that business of consulting is basically this spark or this idea inside an organization that, hey, we have a problem. We haven't really faced it before, but somebody out there probably has faced it before. And so as we need to solve it, how do we make sure we do so in the least expensive, fastest and most efficient way.
1: Can you talk about maybe the project-based model or what's actually being bought and sold when McKinsey sells something or has a
0: value prop to its clients? When you think about what somebody's actually buying, they're buying a specific insight, let's say. Now that insight doesn't have to be right or wrong, but they're buying an insight. And so the way that McKinsey thinks about it is they say, okay, Jesse, let's say in your holding company, you are thinking about M&A, for example. Maybe you need help with evaluating a company to think about M&A. Maybe you've already found a company, you've already done the deal, and you need help integrating that company into your holding company. We're going to come in for a set period of time, and we're going to put a team on the ground that has expertise. And that expertise might be cross-functional. It might be expertise in M&A specifically. It might be expertise in D2C or e-commerce, the different types of businesses you have. That team is going to come in and basically help you with the very specific problem that you have. Let's take the example of evaluating a company, for example. Let's say you're making your first acquisition. What McKinsey's going to do is they're going to come in and they're going to say, how large of an acquisition, Jesse, are you making? How valuable is this going to be to your business? We're going to put a team together, which can deliver an assessment on you making the decision of whether you should buy this company or not. That decision at the end of the day is fundamentally going to be yours. But we're going to put a team in place, which kind of matches the level of sophistication and the level of value, ostensibly, you're going to drive by buying this company. And there's really three levels of engagement or a structure that McKinsey puts together. So, one is how long are they going to be helping you? The second is how many folks are going to be helping you? And then the third is what's the seniority of those folks that are going to be helping you? Many folks have heard in professional services, you might have business analysts or associates. And these are your young guns working the Excel model or working the PowerPoint slides, et cetera, that have just come out. And then you have more experienced principals and partners, et cetera. So McKinsey, at the end of the day, what they try to do in every context or every individual situation is put together a team that's going to be for the right duration, the right level of seniority, and the right level of expertise for whatever specific business problem you're facing.
1: Got it. So essentially, as a CEO, I'm paying for a certain number of people's time and energy to solve the problem that I want to solve.
0: That's exactly right. There's this phrase that McKinsey uses, which is, and you're familiar with this because we both work there, it's called problem solving. And so the idea is basically they have problem solving methodologies, they have problem solving frameworks, but basically the idea is whatever problem you're facing as a business, we can come in and solve it. That's kind of where that etymology comes from.
1: And talk about the scale of McKinsey. I mean, people heard the name a lot, but how big of a business is it? How profitable is it? Give us a sense for
0: scale. It's a massive business. It has 10 billion or 10 billion in revenue today. It's got 30,000 plus employees. I think across 130 cities and 50, 60 countries. The interesting thing about McKinsey is they don't really talk much about their client base and the scale of their business. They're notoriously private for that. We can kind of break down the whys of that. But they service virtually every top global organization in the world. Most organizations are in the private sector. But they also have a long history of serving clients in the public sector as well. There's a pretty fun anecdote, which is the chief of staff role was actually created by McKinsey. When McKinsey was engaged by President Eisenhower, Eisenhower, the White House, the project was basically how do we think about reorganizing the executive branch potentially? And that's when the chief of staff role came about. One other piece on the scale piece, which is just interesting for folks listening, I think you can only appreciate how deeply penetrated McKinsey is in the private and public sector when you look at the alumni base. The alumni base, it's over 15,000 folks. But more interestingly, I think two to 300 of them actually run multi-billion dollar organizations. And many of the CEOs of companies we all know and love, Google, Morgan Stanley, Alliance, DoorDash, all their CEOs are ex-McKinsey folks.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's a brand which we'll talk a lot more about in a second. So what does that mean in terms of... like? I guess this project category you mentioned, how many projects does that mean they're running? How big of an opportunity is consulting or management consulting when you think about the market size and the potential for it?
0: I think the market opportunity and the TAM question is really interesting when you think about McKinsey. We'll talk a little bit more, I think about the evolution of McKinsey, the business model, et cetera, later. But for now, what I'd say is there are very few businesses, at least that I can think of, and maybe you can think of, where GDP is like a proxy for the company's addressable market. Amazon certainly comes to mind as one for me. I think in its own unique way, McKinsey is another. I mean, at the end of the day, McKinsey is in the business of providing advice and counsel. If you think about that as a fundamental unit of their business, then theoretically advice and counsel to institutions is just something that will continually be sought as institutions evolve. And whether that's an offensive play, like inorganic or organic growth, whether it's a defensive play or everything on the spectrum in between. I think if you extend that logic The way I think about it, at least, is McKinsey can be potentially involved with any business as it evolves. Think about how many businesses or organizations there are in the world. These guys obviously service a ton of them. It becomes clear when you multiply those two things how large of an opportunity this fundamentally is. This is fundamentally the advice and judgment game. Now, whether they want to enter into the smaller organization world or a vertical or so on and so forth is a debate for more pragmatic strategy. But the market size, I actually think about it. GDP is kind of a proxy for market size for a company like McKinsey.
1: McKinsey has a very famous ownership model. Can you talk about what it is and how it works?
0: The ownership model is really interesting. So McKinsey is a partnership, and that's important to call out that it doesn't operate like a corporation. So McKinsey doesn't have a CEO. It has a managing partner, but the managing partner is not the CEO of the firm. The partnership is an equal weighted partnership. I think there's about two thousand partners now globally at McKinsey, McKinsey partners get cash component, performance component. A large amount of their compensation is tied to performance compensation. And so everybody is incentivized to ensure that the firm at large is actually performing at its targets. And the positive thing about that is that there are a lot of professional services models in which it's kind of an eat what you kill model. You're really incentivized basically to whatever work that you're bringing in. It doesn't really matter. You're playing a micro business game. It doesn't really matter how the rest of the firm or how the rest of the company is doing. All you're focused on is kind of eat what you kill. McKinsey has kind of famously not had that eat what you kill type model and specifically to incentivize long-term endurance, but then also collective gains for all the partners that are associated. So a portion of that compensation goes into something interesting. It's called MIO partners. MIO partners, I think generously, you could call it a hedge fund, probably under generously, you'd call it a wealth management office. It's somewhere in the middle. But a lot of that compensation actually then goes into structured products that can be after-tax products, et cetera, that are more advantaged ways for McKinsey partners to invest. So there's a pretty interesting tie-in to the partnership model from the perspective of how the firm actually works. There's an election for the global managing partner. Every set number of years, they can only have three election cycle is at maximum. So there's a constantly rotating set of who is actually running the firm. But the running the firm part of it also is not running it as a CEO. It's really running it as an equal-weighted partnership. I think there's been debate and speculation of does McKinsey go public one day? We see other consultancies like the Accentures others of the world that have gone public. But my sense is based on the McKinsey culture, I'd be very hard-pressed or, or surprised if they ever went public.
1: Talk about the history of McKinsey a little bit. Who started it? who made it what it is, and even in more modern times, how has it evolved?
0: The firm has a pretty interesting background founding story. I think to really understand the story and really get a good feel of the firm itself, I think you have to understand two things. So one is the context of what was going on in the world when McKinsey was founded. And then the second is the ambitions of the founder, James McKinsey, and really the guy that was responsible for scaling it, a guy named Marvin Bauer. So let's talk about the first one first. McKinsey was founded in the 20s, thick of the industrial revolution. And at that point in time, US business establishment was going through hypergrowth. Today we've got all these practices and best practices, frameworks, et cetera, on how you think about growth. But really at that point in time, it was a super novel challenge. I mean, companies had not grown at the level of scale as what was going on in the 1920s in the US. Any business, if you were of any kind of interesting size, you were creating some sort of growth strategy to think about demand. You were building out your infrastructure to match that demand with supply. And then the most difficult problem was you were trying to hire and train people. Today, we call that the management class in America. There were no managers in American business at that point in time. And so this idea of go hire managers or people that even know about management principles was just not there. And this was the opportunity that James McKinsey saw. McKinsey was hyper-analytical. He was an accountant by trade. His fundamental belief and why he thought that there was white space in this category was his frustration was that businesses weren't really run with rigor. A fun fact is, I think the original name of the firm, I'm sure I'll botch this, but I think the original name was McKinsey and Company Management Engineers and Accountants. The name spelled out what he thought a consultant's job was to support that kind of management class through precision. Precision that only engineers and accountants have, not normal run of the mill business people.
1: That's cool. And interestingly, James McKinsey, as a person who worked there, is not the guy people revere inside the firm. So, talk about who they revere and why. What happened there?
0: That's the funny thing, right? Sometimes the founding story. I mean, the guy that has the namesake of the firm. You're right. Is like when we're inside the firm, that's not the guy who's talked about at all. And the guy that's talked about is a guy named Marvin Bauer. Bauer is kind of heralded. As the architect of the firm and really responsible for its expansion. The way I'd put it is if James McKinsey was obsessed with businesses being driven by analytical rigor, Bauer was obsessed with the idea of service and professionalism. So the way that Bauer thought about it was he wanted consultants to be held in high class, kind of like doctors and lawyers. In his mind, if you had a health issue, you had to go to a doctor. If you had a legal issue, you had to go to a lawyer. He wanted to create a firm where if you had a business issue or a management issue, you had to go to McKinsey. it was pretty interesting because he took a bunch of inspiration actually from doctors, lawyers, engineers in terms of the high class of their professions and kind of wrapped it all around priesthood. His fundamental ethos was you need to be a servant to your clients above all. And I think that servant leadership mindset is really what actually drew a lot of the professional services principles that Bauer is credited for. And not only McKinsey today, but a lot of other top professional services firms use. I'll give a couple examples. One was, it's a one-firm situation. So Bauer's philosophy and perspective was, if you hire Jesse, if you hire Ramin, it doesn't matter, you're getting the entire backing of McKinsey when you bring those guys in. He was really bullish on hiring young credentialed talent versus experts. That was very contrarian at that point in time. His idea was, I'm going to hire people that have really, really strong, raw intellectual horsepower, and then I'm going to build a model where I can train them and I can develop them. And that's going to build the best professionals in the world. He was really ruthless on rigorous performance management. I mean, you know this, there was an upper out philosophy at McKinsey. Every couple of years, you're moving to the next rank or kind of out. And so Bauer was really, really critical for the way the firm is today. A lot of the values that the firm espouses, thought process around expansion, strategy, focus, etc. A lot of that came from Marvin Bauer. That's really cool.
1: What years was he there? Like, when did he start? And how did the firm evolve as he was there?
0: Bauer was there for a long time. I mean, he's probably one of the only people that was actually around when McKinsey was there. I mean, he was hired by James McKinsey. And then when McKinsey died, I think in the late 30s, Bauer basically came into more power. He served as managing director for almost 20 years from 1950 to 1967. But he served as a partner, actually, until the early 90s. So he died in 2000. He served as a partner until the early nineties. Bauer wasn't at the helm throughout that period, but his mindset and the way he thought about the business is I think ultimately when I think about McKinsey, I think the one thing you really have to appreciate is it's the classic story of an enduring business. And there's a lot to learn from this idea of starting in one location and then really playing arguably as integral a role in capitalism as any organization can claim. I mean, that's a big claim. That's not a small claim. And so a lot of that evolution of McKinsey, McKinsey very much so when uh, Bauer was at the helm, I'd say it was a very inward looking firm. And what I mean by that is when they worked with companies, they looked inside the company. What's the capital allocation? What's the organizational design? What's the resource allocation? But the market really changed. I mean, the market really changed in the 70s and 80s when Boston Consulting Group and Bain and Company came around. Changed again in the 90s when a bunch of tech consulting firms, the Capgeminis, the et etc. as the world came on. I think the enduring thing that Bauer really put inside McKinsey was this idea of strong foundational culture, but loose affiliation to tactics. So that foundational culture of saying that the only way that you stay at the top is actually constant reinvention was very much a mainstay, the Bauer legacy. And so a lot of the tactics we can go into, that's interesting, but the cultural underpinning of saying that we have a really strong culture that is able to adapt was really the legacy of Marvin Bauer.
1: My understanding was the one thing that McKinsey stood for and he stood for for a while. We're super candid. We're going to tell things. Firm has evolved a little bit from that. If you think about the last 15 or 20 years, or maybe the post Marvin Bauer era, what have been the biggest differences in the firm since then?
0: Bauer thought that the way you communicate something is as important as communicating it. And again, in 2022, we hear that and we're like, duh, that's super normal. And you would expect that in kind of business parlance. It was very thoughtful at the time. When he ran the firm, and this will date him in the era, folks had to have trim cut hair. There was no facial hair. I mean, it was very to the T of what he and his mind saw as a professional. Obviously, McKinsey started hiring women, you know, more diverse folks. I think the firm, after Bauer has gone through its own couple periods of time where it hasn't been actually as obvious as what McKinsey has really stood for. There was a famous era, kind of in the 2000s, when Rudyard took over the firm as managing partner he turned on every growth dial under the sun. The firm did amazing by all objective measures. I mean, I think the firm 3X, so like 4 billion in revenue or so, but they took a lot more risk. And Marvin Bauer had this principle and this value, which was to not be overtly commercial. That sounds really funny when you think about it, because this was like one of the most commercial enterprises ever. He was really trying to say that always do what's in the client's interest don't sell business just for the sake of selling business. His idea was not you build a firm in which people come to make the most amount of money. It's where people come for principled business advice. That cultural aspect really took a turn on the heels. And specifically when Gupta came into place, Gupta took a lot more risk in the business model. When he ran the firm, famously around the dot-com time, McKinsey took equity, I think in 150 companies or so they were doing business at some point in time with basically anybody and everybody that could open up the pocketbooks. And I think you've seen that pan out in some of the ethics scandals as of late with some foreign governments. And the end result, even at Gupta's tenure, and he was leading the firm through this time, was Enron happened. And Enron was, the listeners here know, it was a massive corporate scandal. What folks might not know was Enron was doubly a scandal for McKinsey because the Enron CEO, Jeffrey Skilling, was a former McKinsey partner. And so it was kind of a circular failing on every respect and every regard. The firm has, whether it's been through force, I think you and I as alumni would probably like to think through getting back to its true cultural roots has certainly dialed down. Some of those scandals have still pervaded and it's problematic, but the firm has kind of evolved in a way in which it says, let's think about the longer term duration of again, building an enduring business. And that's fundamentally why the firm has been so strong for the last hundred years or so. It's because it's had that culture of long term thinking and building an enduring business. What that typically ends up pragmatically turning into is you do right by your customers and your shareholders and your stakeholders. McKinsey definitely lost its way in the middle or so. And it was, I think, after that era, it was actually met with very tepid growth. But I would argue that tepid growth was also matched with the cultural affinity of kind of getting back to the right place.
1: I want to double click into a lot of the stuff that you're talking about. Before we do that, can you talk a little bit about the industry of consulting and maybe in a slightly double-clicked way from what you did previously around who are the big competitors if you're McKinsey? What are practice groups and the different types of verticals and projects people take on? Like, How do those dynamics work? And just help us understand how the actual true commerciality of the industry operates.
0: So I think if you top-down look at like a market sizing or so, I think there's reports out there that talk about consulting as a, call it $150 billion to $200 billion kind of market. Like we talked about before, consulting can mean everything and anything under the sun. And so that includes one-man shops to the McKinsey types of the world. The business of consulting is segmented and fragmented based on, I'd say, management consulting, operational consulting, and technology consulting. And there's more nuance in that, but I think that's helpful for our discussion today. In management consulting and strategic consulting, there's really only two firms that I'd say have risen to the class of McKinsey or really kind of formidably pushed McKinsey has competitors. It's Boston Consulting Group, BCG, and Bain & Company. And in the industry, they're known as NBB or the big three. There's another set of consulting firms that are significantly larger than those three consulting firms that also have accounting firms appendage to them, and they do much more operational work. So those are firms like Deloitte, PwC, uh, KPMG. Accenture doesn't have an accounting practice, but Accenture as well. And then you have a lot of IT-specific shops. So a lot of these firms are kind of a mix of BPOs, like outsourced and offshore operations, as well as operational outfits. So these are your IBMs, Capgeminis, et etc. IBM is a little bit different than the rest of that class because they do a lot of other stuff, but IBM consulting at least. The business of consulting is, in one sense, it's highly competitive. And in another sense, it's highly insulated. When McKinsey goes to compete, they really compete with Bain and BCG. And that's about it. The competitive pressures between those three are very, very intense. But those businesses over the last five years have been growing at their fastest clips than ever before. I mentioned McKinsey is about a $10 billion business. I think BCG is about an $8 billion business and Bain is about a $4 billion business. Bain has taken a slightly different approach than both McKinsey and BCG. Bain has taken an approach of going very, very deep from a functional and vertical perspective. So a lot of folks listening probably know about Bain Capital and capital was famously spun out of bain and it was because bain had a private equity practice and so bain thinks of themselves as much more of a regional player much more of a on site onshore player meaning that their consultants don't travel as much and they have certain functions that they're really really good at mckinsey kind of likes to think of itself as the new york city of consulting they do every vertical they do every function they've started recently doing a ton of MA, bringing in all sorts of different talent And the thesis and kind of the hypothesis for why they operate that way is their perspective is they're basically the best business repository in the world. So the more that they see from a vertical perspective, like you mentioned, Jesse, in terms of different industries, from a function perspective, marketing, sales, you know, so on and so forth. And from a global perspective, they have offices in over 50 countries. And so I think the strategic piece has been McKinsey, Bain, and BCG have kind of operated a little bit insulated, highly competitive to one another, but insulated from everybody else in the industry. And the focus has kind of been top-down C-suite level initiatives versus other folks. But that model has evolved a lot over a period of time. It's had to evolve because of competitive pressures and such.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember very distinctly industries on one side, functions on the other side, geos on a third, three-dimensional chart. If you're a CEO or top level manager at a Fortune 500 company, how does somebody make a choice around which one to do business with and why?
0: It's funny because I think anybody who's listening to this from McKinsey, from Bain, or from BCG, they're not going to be satisfied with this answer. I think they'd like to think that they're a lot more different than they actually are. I think the firms have significantly more commonality between the three of them than they are different. In the 70s and 80s, when Bain and BCG came about, their real claim to fame was, I was talking about a little bit earlier that McKinsey was highly internally focused. Their claim to fame was they were externally focused. So they came up with two by two matrices and some of these different tools that we all commonly use in business today. But Bain and BCG were very, very externally focused, advising companies on how should you be thinking about the horizon? How should you be thinking about your markets and accordingly reacting? That has all gone out the watershed. I wouldn't say McKinsey is an internally focused firm today. The other two are externally focused. They all do everything. Not dissimilar to any industry in which you have a small set of competitors at the top. They have their own niches. If you're a private equity-backed company, Bain is going to be a bit of a better fit. If you're looking for pricing and sales and marketing, specifically in the Southeast, I'd say McKinsey is going to be a little bit better of a fit. So they have their niches. I think a lot of if you're at a Fortune 500, you're a C-suite Executive, the way you're making that determination is really on the specificity of your business problem, as opposed to anything academically that ostensibly the three firms can bring to the table that the other three firms can't. They're all filled with super talented people. They have scale, they're big businesses, they know what they're doing, they've got great client Rolodexes. It really just boils down to at the end of the day, what's the specific business problem that you're trying to solve?
1: I want to go a couple levels deeper into this to really break it down. So I have a specific business problem. I hire McKinsey. Talk to me about what's a normal project, what's kind of the happy meal they sell, how much does it cost, what are their costs associated with it? Like, just give me the PL of a project.
0: McKinsey is notoriously private about its fee structure. I think the cool thing is for folks that are trying to understand their business, or I'd say any other top tier professional services business, is they all do public sector work. And when you do public sector work, the bids are public information. So we can actually take a very real example and break down the business. Before jumping into specific numbers, let me take a step back and kind of talk about some of the elements that you were bringing out. So the idea, again, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the idea comes down to how many work streams are on an individual project. So a project might be super simplistic. It might be there's only one work stream. There's only one team. It might be really complex. You might be doing very, very large scale M&A project. You might have a team that's focused on making sure we hit synergy targets for Wall Street, a team that's focused on organ operating model design you can have a whole kind of roster of teams. So the first piece is it really depends on what's the complexity of the project. Any individual work stream is kind of structured the same way. Again, it's going to be a function of how many consultants are there? How long are they there for? What's the level of their seniority on the team? The state of New Jersey actually had a project. I pulled this out for our conversation. The state of New Jersey had a project for COVID response, and they had three work streams. Now, the unit economics were pretty similar on all three, so we can just dive into one. So for a team of six consultants, McKinsey proposed a fee of $180,000 per week. And so that breaks down to about $6,000 per consultant per day, something like 750 bucks an hour for an eight hour day. Now, you know this as well as I, that that's super generous because no McKinsey consultant is working eight hours a day. I wish I was on projects that were working eight hours a day, but it's directionally helpful. And that per diem can range really widely. It can be 3K for a junior consultant, and it can be 15 to 20K for a senior partner. Now, by no means are those consultants making $750 an hour. The junior consultants, certainly not. And so there's a lot of margin in that project structure to basically accord for and support different things. Now, some of that goes towards direct costs. The biggest direct cost, of course, is the salaries of the professionals that you're putting on the ground. The second biggest cost is that one firm mindset. So there are teams offshore that are supporting with making slides. There might be research analysts to pull data. Analytics teams, extra number crunching is required. But the secret about those projects is oftentimes those are billed at separate resources. So McKinsey is not thinking about itself as just because we're bringing one firm to the table, do we necessarily need to subsidize some of those elements or so? I mean, it's a very, very high margin business.
1: I want to put some tighter numbers on it. So yeah, 108,000 a week by my back envelope is about seven, 800,000 a month, let's say 750,000 a month. You've got six full time people. So, just ballpark, what do those people cost
0: typically? If you're a first year consultant at a graduate school, it's like call it 200000 If you're at undergrad, undergrad, 100000 grand. So, 50 to 100 bucks an hour type resources if you drilled it down to the hourly.
1: So, you have $750,000, you are paying six times 20, 120,000, some other research analysts and support. And what about all the travel and airplanes and hotel rooms that people always talk about in consulting?
0: There's two different types of models. One is it's baked into a cost structure and the flat fee that's being charged, or the other is it's cost plus, and it's being charged on top. I think anybody that's listening that's run a professional services firm knows that that's a little bit more semantics. And the reality is, is the client is paying for it at the end of the day. And so a lot of those core expenses, when you break down the business, I think, and you think of beyond the people, what are all the other expenses that are being paid for? It fundamentally is paid by the client. And so the result is you end up having a very, very high margin, almost like a technology like gross margin business. We talk a lot about technology businesses are 60, 70% gross margin. It's incredibly attractive. That's about the margin range that McKinsey runs on without the need to reinvest the amount of capital that a technology company of this type of scale would be reinvesting below the line.
1: That's obviously a very high gross margin. You talked about 10 billion in revenue. What are the other big expenses? below these projects that come out? And what does the EBITDA look like?
0: I mean, I think when you run these types of firms and you're hiring really top talent, you're putting in all the investment structures into making sure that that top talent is in a position to succeed. And it can be on as trivial of things as benefits and comfort, or it can be on as extensive of things as true training and development or advanced technology centers, et etc. to make your people better or to make them work better. I think these types of businesses, I don't know exactly, Jesse, but I would spitball that these folks are probably operating probably around like a 25, 30% EBITDA, which is extremely, extremely high if you think about just a normal business construct. And so really the question becomes between that 50 to 70% and 30%, where are the costs being spent? And the vast majority of it is being invested in ways that I would say are directly related back to people, whether it's having nice offices, whether it's having training and development, whether it's recruiting and sourcing the next set of candidates, et cetera, that 30 to 40% or so is in some way tied back ultimately to the talent of the firm.
1: A typical business obviously has marketing, sales, delivery of their product. Talk about to what extent we can around McKinsey in that regard. Well, let's start with marketing and sales. How does McKinsey do marketing and sales?
0: I think it's actually one of the most underrated elements of their business model. If we go back to what I was talking about before, right? Firm has that value of don't overtly be commercial, do kind of what's in the client's interest. Let's keep that as kind of one vector, just to remind folks. And then the other vector is like extremely deep training and development and having like a massive platform that really, really focuses on folks. The implication is that when most people leave, when they leave McKinsey, it's almost like a part of their identity is tied back with McKinsey, whether that's in the next job, whether it's at a dinner party, whatever it might be part of their identity is kind of tied towards McKinsey. Many of these alumni, as we talked about earlier, go on to be leaders in industry. What happens when you combine the two? You get alumni that credit McKinsey for arguably the most formidable parts of their career and are trained to think a certain way. And then you get a whole bunch of McKinsey folks that go into industry and they're brought into that client because of the way they're thinking. When they're on the other side and they need help, who's the first call they make? It's right back to McKinsey. The model of business development or marketing is actually pretty unbelievable if you think about it. McKinsey, what they're doing and why they end up spending that top dollar internally on training, it's not just training their own internal professionals. In a sense, it's they're training their next set of clients at the same time. The model is... It's really, really... And Bain and BCG and say top tier professional services firms think about it the same way is you can do traditional business development and all the prongs of traditional business development we're all familiar with. That's not super interesting or exciting. I think the interesting piece is how many of these consultants are actually going on as they become alumni to clients. And because those are the folks that are in leadership positions and positions of power and authority, they're bringing McKinsey right back through that same door.
1: It's like a talent flywheel of sorts. When did that start? and How did that evolve?
0: I mean, it started really at the beginning of McKinsey. It just was a lot smaller. When Bauer and these guys ran the firm, and it was only in New York or only in Chicago, that talent wheel was just inside specific financial institutions. As they went more global, it started becoming in other companies. As they went deeper in certain verticals or certain functions, went deeper and deeper. The reason why earlier I called McKinsey as the New York City of consulting is it's a very intentional thought process for the way the firm has built itself. In fact, they take the opposite approach of a bane and say, we don't want to lower our standards for the folks that we're hiring, but actually, we don't really want a rejectionist or an exclusive culture. We want to hire as many people as possible that can keep the bar because those many people, the business model is not going to change. Those people are not going to stay at McKinsey. The average tenure, I think, is like two and a half or three years. So those folks are going to leave. But when they leave, we want them to have had a really good experience at McKinsey, a tie-in to McKinsey, and then bring us along for the ride wherever they go.
1: Can you talk about some of the more traditional sales and marketing things they do? like The McKinsey Quarterly, before content marketing was a thing, People in my undergrad, we were nerdy Wharton business kids, would reading the McKinsey Quarterly. Talk about some of the more traditional things they've done and how they've spun them.
0: It's a good area to focus. And it all kind of starts back with what we were talking about a little bit earlier of this idea of being a repository for business. And so part of the idea was, for collecting all this information, we're collecting all these insights. It's great. We can use them in client service. But how can we actually spin them up and how can we actually use them to put our insights out into the world in a passive way? So you're right. The McKinsey Quarterly was a publication that McKinsey came up with. McKinsey also has something that's tangentially related called the McKinsey Global Institute, which puts together research, data, insights, papers at a much broader and a much more theoretic level. But the idea was to become the practical Harvard Business Review. If people came to Harvard Business Review to write about theories about business, people went to McKinsey Quarterly to actually apply those theories in real practice. And all the articles in McKinsey Quarterly were coming out from sanitized versions of actual client engagements or actual cross-observations in a specific industry or so. It was pretty novel. I mean, you wouldn't think of a consulting firm necessarily getting in the authorship and the publication business. And it's not something they've ever charged for. And that was really intentional too. The intentionality there was basically to have as wide of brand awareness as possible so that nerdy Wharton kids like you, Jesse, could read that, get enamored, and say, hey, this is the place that I want to work and I want to start my career.
1: Talk about the sales process. For my recollection, it's never even called sales. How does someone pitch business in McKinsey land and how does that world work?
0: It goes back to that value of not being overtly commercial, which again, it just sounds so silly because this is like such a commercially driven place. But the idea, you're right. I mean, Bauer had a very firm way of how he thought about vernacular. He didn't like sales. I mean, he didn't like calling clients customers. He wanted to call them clients. He didn't like calling it business units. He wanted to call it practices. There was this level of professionalism around actually structuring the firm that he was very particular on. And so, in terms of sales, in terms of business development, etc., the vast majority of sales actually comes from being inside the client already and doing good work there. The lineage is McKinsey didn't always service every company out there. So one question is, okay, well, how did they get into these companies? They did great work, or they had a reputation for their work. And so they got into different organizations. And then once they got into different organizations, it's just a function of continually doing the work. So a lot of the vast majority of commercial opportunities actually just come from existing clients. They actually don't come from new clients. So that framing of McKinsey is serviced, 90 of the top 100 global organizations. I mean, that's been a truism for 30 years, 40 years. Yes, some of those organizations have changed, absolutely. But the vast majority of them have not changed. It's just the wallet share and the penetration on the McKinsey side has gotten deeper and deeper. Really, the fundamental for sales and business development, etc., has always been a little bit of this passive approach. We develop alumni that then go to these firms and bring us back in. We do really good work and we identify another business problem we tell folks that, hey, you need actually support to think about and solve this business problem, and that unlocks more budget. It's much less of a traditional hunting, I'd say, mentality. It's probably as extreme of a farming and harvesting mentality as you could probably find out there for any organization.
1: What are some other special parts of the organization? You talked earlier about they've done a lot of offshoring stuff. Like, What are some other unique things people might not know looking from the outside in from an org perspective or team perspective that make McKinsey special?
0: This might sound obvious, but it was my experience internally. I'm curious to hear yours as well. It's kind of hard to understate how far an organization can go when talent is so good. I think when you have a concentration of just extremely, extremely high talent density, it makes for very interesting things. The rub on McKinsey is it's a consulting firm. You know, People don't really actually do anything over there. There's no real skin in the game. I'd actually take the opposite approach, which is it's pretty amazing that that firm has actually been around for 100 years and as influential as it's actually been. And that hasn't been without tons and tons of ups and downs, leadership changes, strategic calls, etc. They've experimented with inorganic growth, organic growth. Inorganic growth actually might be something pretty interesting for us to touch on. But I think the core of it, what I was always most impressed by, and I think is ultimately going to be like the bull or the bear case for their continued dominance and sustenance is just how far and how fast an organization can move, even at that scale when you have very top talent.
1: On the talent side, I mean, you've said it so many times. Let's go even deeper into it. Why is the talent so special at McKinsey? What are the things they do to find the talent, to develop talent? Let's talk a little bit about the, the way people are promoted. Like, let's go really deep into the talent
0: model at McKinsey. So there's two ways to think about the talent model. One way to think about the talent model is, is it McKinsey doing the development and the training? Did these people show up at the door of McKinsey and then they just become these amazingly highly talented people? Or is it the inverse, which is McKinsey has built the ultimate honeypot in the world and really smart people show up at the door? And yeah, there's training and there's development and such, but they've kind of built the honeypot and they've attracted the highest density of talent. I think it's a little bit of both. So I think the first part is equally as important as what goes on inside. So I think the first part is pretty important to double-click into. So how have they built this honeypot where folks that come from good schools or so on and so forth say, hey, this is a place that I want to work at." It's kind of the mystique and the brand that they've built up as an organization over a period of time. You have corollary organizations like Goldman Sachs, Blackstone, and corollary spaces, banking, private equity, etc. Part of the honeypot that they've built up is folks from top schools want to go work at this place. So I'd say that's the number one advantage. Once you're on the inside, there is a lot of training and development. I think one of the unique things is once you get to McKinsey, regardless of what level you're at, whether it's the most junior level or the most senior level, you go through something called Embark. And Embark is a program that's structured to get you to understand the vernacular, the principles, the common frameworks, etc. that are used at McKinsey. It sounds kind of obvious. Every company has training. What's so special about that? It's a very structured approach on how do you actually think about an engagement or how do you actually think about a team that you're operating in? And the reason why that's so important is because if you imagine, Jesse, you know, you run multiple companies, I run a company, every single person that's coming through the door, if they're absolutely indoctrinated in a certain way to work, but also given the autonomy to jump into their own instincts and such, the acceleration that comes out of the gate is significant and kind of the speed at which you can move is really, really significant. Things like Embark become really interesting. I think when you're on a project itself, the feedback culture at McKinsey is very, very strong. So most teams have what's called an engagement manager. An engagement manager is kind of the full-time person that's sitting on the team that's really supposed to run the team. The associate partner, or the partner, et cetera, are on top. And they're allocating some of their time, but they're working on multiple engagements. So the engagement manager is really the quarterback. And then you have associates and you have analysts that are sitting underneath them. So the feedback culture is extremely strong. I remember on my first engagement, I was doing feedback every single day with the engagement manager. So the reps at which you're running or the speed at which you're developing knowledge around mistakes, et cetera, is very, very high. And then I think going back to the former thing that I was saying is if you're attracting the right type of talent or the type of talent that wants to learn is going to work really hard, is smart, et cetera. I think a million people apply for a job to McKinsey every year and less than 1% get a job. So there's some raw intellectual horsepower, at least let's say, of the people that are joining the firm. If you max that intellectual horsepower with... Ton of feedback and a ton of reps, so it's very common when you come into the firm. Maybe your second week, you're on a project and you're presenting to the COO of a company. You have no business doing that. You don't know anything, but you're thrown into the deep end. So it's this mix of yes, hire smart, fast-moving people, etc. But throw them as much into the deep end as possible without a life jacket. Make them drown a little bit, but then have a culture, have a feedback culture that's so rigorous that they're constantly getting tips and tricks on how to improve, how to improve. When you match those three together, I certainly try to emulate that in our organization. We don't nearly match that. I think it's impossible for most companies to try to match that. But I think you get something really special in terms of training and development. I think that's why the average tenure is a couple of years. It's an intense environment to be in. But when you come out after a couple of years, you certainly don't feel like you worked a job for a couple of years. You feel like you've gotten significantly more advancement inside out that was one of the things i was most impressed by
1: and talk a little bit about how the staffing model plays into that one thing that makes it unique is in a typical job you have one manager and you work with that manager every day day in and day out talk a little bit about how staffing works and how mckinsey ties feedback into staffing itself to create that additional feedback environment
0: the typical engagement it's 12 weeks you might have gotten a little bit longer in more recent years mckinsey's done a little bit less you know pure strategy work and some more operational work But it's like three, four months maximum. And so in those three, four month period, you're working very intensively with that one engagement manager and with that one client in that one business context. So in a sense, your experience is actually incredibly narrow. You're working on one client, one specific business problem with one team for a short duration. But what happens after that period of time is you have a corollary resource in your home office called PD, professional development. It's your PDM, your professional development manager. And their sole job is to kind of be your like free agent coach. What are the things that you're really good at? What are the things that you want to develop? What are the things you're interested in? Do you want to travel? Do you not want to travel? Their sole job is literally to serve as your agent. And they are hunting around the firm to basically find projects that match up and align with not only your professional interests or your areas for skills and development, but also your personal desires are kind of what fits your personal situation. Now, it's not perfect by any stretch, but the intentionality behind it is really interesting because what happens is you can walk into a project and say, hey, I'm really weak at Microsoft Excel. And what the expectations are set with the engagement manager from the outset is, look, if this client is going to fire you guys in a month or you're under the gun and you need a world-class modeler, don't bring this person onto the team. The PDM's job is to basically put you... It goes back to that analogy of kind of throwing you into the deep end, but giving you a little bit of a life jacket. Their job is basically to put you as much into the deep end as is borderline uncomfortable, but also comfortable. There's a actual track in which somebody is managing and somebody is observing how is this person actually progressing? Because when you go project to project, it's actually not the engagement manager's job to think about your professional career. And that's to your point, Jesse, it is very different than a normal job where you're under one manager. You're maybe a part of a team, and they're seeing you much more longitudinally. Oftentimes, the longest time of engagement with an individual engagement manager might just be that three months, and you might actually never work together ever again. That can be super positive. It can be super negative if you really like that team and there is no room left on that team. The PDM structure and the staffing structure becomes really interesting. That is tied in with your performance management leader. And so you have a performance management leader that's not your PDM your performance management leader is a partner at the firm that's responsible for your performance reviews. Their job is to go to all the different teams that you've worked with. It's to work in consult with your PDM and actually collect performance data and have a basis by which they can accurately assess where do you stack internally at the firm. And so the level of investment from the McKinsey side in terms of having kind of this, call it free agent coach, having a partner level resource that's invested in your professional career and your journey, at least from a collecting feedback perspective, providing it, et cetera. And then having engagement managers and individual teams that are also responsible for that feedback. This is not to mention all the additional training that's going on at the, what I'd call class or profession level. So when you're a first-year associate, there's a set curriculum of training. When you're a second-year associate, when you're moving between ranks from associate to engagement manager, your role changes. It's not dissimilar to when you're moving up in more senior ranks in a company. Your role and your skill set starts to change when you're a manager as opposed to an individual contributor. And so there's specific trainings in between levels. And so when you compound all of those pieces together, and that's incorporated in the staffing model, really at its most ideal, the idea is that the model works for you. And the reason why McKinsey makes all that investment is their belief is it's as important of what kind of player you are as what kind of system that you're in. You and I are big sports fans. If we had a team of all shacks and it was an NBA team, that team's going to fail. But if you put the right point guard, the right shooting guard, the right center, it can be magical. And so that's kind of the idea. And that's the logic by which they try to recreate.
1: Two of the things that stuck out to me that were very distinctive, I'd say one is joining a new project, a second or third project. And the person has never worked with me, but actually has a really clear sense for what I'm trying to develop and get better at, as well as some of my strengths and how to put those to work. It's so candid in that sense that everybody knows what everyone else is working on. And I also know the same thing about the manager I'm about to report to. I know what they're trying to get better at, which is kind of a crazy thing. And then the other thing I was going to mention, which is not only is your performance being reviewed, but you're reviewing your manager's performance. And then they're also responsible to somebody else. Another interesting dynamic. The two things that stuck out to me as I remember being like, wow.
0: That's really important to double click on because that was one of the things I was actually Pouring out in my mind as I was saying, it, is there's a part of this model which is really important not to forget, which is it's not one way feedback. You're actually measuring the feedback of other folks. And that's not even just at the engagement manager level. I mean, that's at the partner and the senior partner level. There's this value at McKinsey that I really like, which is this idea. It's called the obligation to dissent. And the idea behind that value is basically regardless of if you're the most junior person in the room, the newest person in the room, you have no context, whatever it is your obligation is to dissent. It's basically to help your team kind of find truth. You can take that in one sense and say, okay, great, that's truth in the business problem. Let's solve the business problem better. But it just so much applies in terms of professional development. The feedback culture, the two-way feedback culture is actually very unique in that organization. And it's an interesting tidbit for folks on the outside to know about.
1: You mentioned earlier some of the scandals. Can you go go into that a little bit deeper? What were examples of the scandals what happened and how might they have happened? We talk so much about the amazing culture and unique values. and How did those scandals end up happening?
0: I think the Enron scandal was probably the one that probably resonates with most folks that are listening. It was a classic story of you start with a little lie and, and a little bit of fudging, and it leads to broader and broader and more provocative statements up until a point in time in which auditors come in and the entire business is just fraud. I think Rajat Gupta's it's not an accident, Jesse. I think that a lot of these scandals actually happened under his tenure. You know, he was actually famously convicted of insider trading after his tenure as well. And I think the crux of it was McKinsey basically lost its way. And what I mean by that when it lost its way is it focused on chasing dollars as opposed to the quality of those dollars. The firm under him, I think I mentioned this before, it 3X'd. They got to $4 billion in revenue, which is amazing. So you look at the metrics and you look at the PL. And everybody's having a party. I mean, the business is on absolute fire. But what wasn't as obvious was the fabric of that business was getting torn down. I'd kind of take a step back versus talking about any one individual scandal. There's been opioid scandal with the pharma company. There's been South African government scandal. There was the Enron scandal. So there's been different scandals, I'd say, in different industries and of different types. And so I think the important thing to do is actually to say, well, what causes these scandals if the culture is so great? So I think it's three or four things. The first thing is, I think it's a natural tension of decentralization and autonomy and centralization and governance. That's a really tough balance. You want to encourage kind of entrepreneurial pursuit, speed, agility, et cetera. All that stuff comes with decentralization, but it also comes with less governance. You get a much higher volatility of outcomes. So I'd say what you've seen probably in McKinsey over the last 20 years is you've seen some really, really high highs and you've seen some really, really low lows. One element has kind of been the change the structure. And every managing partner that's come to fruition has had to figure out what level of balance they're comfortable with. In part, some have come in and changed the model because they're in PR crisis mode. And in some, they've probably pushed the dial a little bit too aggressively because it's been safe and consistent for a long period of time. So I think one is kind of that tension between centralization and decentralization. I think the second is the commerciality. We talked about that kind of ad nauseum. I think the third piece is just limited accountability. In the Gupta era, McKinsey became the when they're right, we're right. When the client's right, we're right. And when the client's wrong, they're wrong firm, which is kind of a r- ironic if you think about it, because the shtick to clients is, you know, these guys are the smartest guys in the room. So it's like you're the smartest people in the room, dot, 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 until you're not the smartest people in the room. So I think a culture of accountability was definitely lost. And then I think there's a law of large numbers. When you have expansion and you have that many people, there's more likelihood of messing up. I think ultimately, If I were to distill it and even take those and kind of boil them up, I think it fundamentally is what kind of firm are you trying to create? Bauer didn't value money. Again, that sounds odd because of the kind of money printing machine that he made, but he didn't value money. And it wasn't academic. Actually, when he retired, he sold his shares of McKinsey back to the partnership at book value, which is insane if you think about it. I mean, the value of those shares, he sold it back at book value. It was the truest show of actually living their values. But in the Gupta era, that was not the case. And every managing partner afterwards has had to fight with that because in the Gupta era, attrition amongst the partnership was at its highest. The the number of new partners that came in the door was at its highest. The number of partners that made the most amount of money they had ever made was at its highest. And so you change the culture. You've got a lot of people that start saying, well, wait a minute, why aren't we focusing on overtly commercial pursuits? Everything is going fine and when you have those kind of tears in the fabric and such you know these types of situations occur that's how i would think about it
1: yeah and it's noteworthy that as far as i understand that's still what every partner does they sell their shares back at book value
0: yeah that's totally right which is astounding i can't think of any other firms in the world i'm sure there's a handful you know where that's where that's the case
1: when you think about growth for the business i mean you talked about obviously a negative case of it but now it's a 10 billion dollar company so it's grown even since then clearly What are the big growth levers in their business looking forward? If you're the managing partner tomorrow, where are you spending time on growth and why?
0: McKinsey, I think in the late 2007-2008 timeframe, came up with something called McKinsey Solutions. And Jesse, you'll be really intimately familiar with this because you were at the firm right around that time where that was becoming a thing. I'm dating you a little bit. But that was really interesting because basically what McKinsey Solutions was, what the idea behind McKinsey Solutions was was more asset-based consulting. So everything we've talked about today, consulting is the business of advice and judgment, soft deliverables. Asset-based consulting on the other side is pairing that soft judgment with actually hard assets with software. And McKinsey faced this innovator's dilemma moment of sorts. They could have taken the option, which is classic innovator's dilemma. You just keep climbing up into the right. You do more and more lucrative work. Or... You actually look downstream and say, well, what is actually disrupting us? And what's coming in and providing value to clients at much cheaper price points than we're providing to clients? I'd say that McKinsey actually found a pretty elegant solution in this idea of McKinsey Solutions. And I'll talk a little bit about why, but I think that's actually the growth lever down the line. So let me talk about the why first. The why is that clients started looking for more and more unique and creative ways to engage with McKinsey. This kind of idea of a three-month strategy engagement, at one point in time, that was 80 to 90% of the business. I think it's 20 30% of the business today. And a lot of the type of business that actually happens at McKinsey today is this hard asset-based McKinsey Solutions consulting. So McKinsey Solutions has 30 different software solutions. It's by vertical, it's by function. Some of these have been built internally. Many of these have been acquired. And the model now for clients is... We'll come in and we'll do the work, but then we'll actually leave a piece of software back that you can self-serve and you can actually use. That's been especially important, not just because of the revenue, et cetera, or the growth that that's driven. Like Obviously, that has a different way of engaging, but it's brought two different muscles into the organization. One muscle it's brought in is an M&A muscle. And so a lot of inorganic activity is happening at McKinsey now. That's very, very new. Previously in the history of the firm, even hiring from outside of the firm was not a thing. You would hire from school or so and you'd train from within. And then the second thing is you've created an environment in which data scientists, engineers, designers, product people, et cetera, can actually come in. If we believe that that's the lifeblood really of any future organization, some composition of that, then McKinsey has turned itself into a ground in which those types of players can actually play. I think the biggest growth levers actually are doubling down on this McKinsey solution side. And I think the interesting thing is if you think about any company that McKinsey buys, oftentimes they've worked with that company for a long period of time before they've bought them. And the pattern is pretty clear. They've identified a pattern. They've partnered with some software provider and delivered actual value in a consulting work stream to their client. And then they've said, hey, great, we can actually replicate this across a whole bunch of use cases. Let's actually acquire this and bring this into our portfolio. And so the cool thing about that is you're de-risking any deal that you're doing significantly from the outset because you've already worked with that partner. And then when you actually bring them into the fold, you're augmenting and accelerating out of the gate because you already have live use cases with them. I don't think that genie goes back in the bottle. I don't think consulting, the idea of consulting reverts to a softer, less qualitative world. I think it keeps going down into a hard qualitative world. But I'd say that McKinsey's competitive differentiator is also not getting too bought into that camp. I fundamentally don't believe that the idea of partnering, judgment, counsel, et cetera, goes away. If anything, I think with more complexity in business, the need for that comes up even more. But I think the idea of paying for really, really expensive folks to do models and manual Excel, et cetera, that type of work, I think the patience for that type of work definitely goes away in a more technology-driven world.
1: What are examples of this software?
0: There's 30 different solutions, like I mentioned. One of the solutions that I had worked with In my time at McKinsey was a solution called Orpheus, which was a procurement and a tail spend management type solution. The interesting thing is McKinsey can go into a company. Again, let's think about a traditional consulting engagement, a typical procurement or finance engagement. You come in, you get a data dump from the client, probably from their finance department of all the money that they spend. You categorize all the different areas in which all the different buckets in which they spend money. Maybe you look internally as to what are those different areas and where have we had a good supply base or opportunity to cut costs before, et etc. And then you spit something back to the client. And that can be super useful. It's a diagnostic exercise. It's an organizational exercise. It gets everybody oriented. It's for a period of time, but it's a static period of time. You do that once, you walk away, you got paid for it and you walk away. And then the client is going to have to do that again in six months, 12 months, whatever it is. So Orpheus was a pretty cool solution, which was basically in the consulting workflow itself, in the construct of the way McKinsey thinks about that problem, what would that look like if there was actually software helping facilitate that? What happens in the McKinsey engagement now is as a customer or as a client, I should say, you're not just paying for that one-time analysis. You're paying for that analysis, yes, but you're also paying for that methodology. And then that methodology is actually prescribed in a technology that sits with you and a company basically forever. I mean, you can continue to pay software subscription or the subscription license for as long as you want. The cool thing about these different solutions, Orpheus as an example, before you would bring in McKinsey to do one exercise and they'd walk away and you'd get your answer at that static point in time. But now the question is, is if you use a McKinsey solution, can you basically get that orientation? Yes. But can you get that augmentation for a long period of time and a self-sustaining duration? You don't need a McKinsey team of professionals on the ground to continually refresh that work and give you value.
1: What portion of the business is that for them now?
0: I don't know, but the way that I would think about it is you have a $10 billion firm in tech and software. We look at companies doing 100 million of ARR, 200 million of ARR, and these are vaunted unicorns of sorts. I can't imagine the McKinsey portfolio is any less than that from a revenue perspective. So I think secretly of sorts, McKinsey is probably sitting on an unbelievable software business. That's never really talked about.
1: As we look forward for McKinsey, I doubt they do traditional financial planning. But if McKinsey in five or 10-year horizon is bigger, better, badder than it's ever been, what do you think they really got right? And what do you think might have happened in the macro environment?
0: I think what would have happened is they would have really leaned into this culture and this idea of foundation stays the same, but all the tactics change. The firm, when I was there, was focusing significantly on digital transformation, talent and capability building. And those really weren't words or concepts that were being talked about 10 years ago. And I think the idea there was volatility and change is really healthy for a business like McKinsey. I mean, I think if companies have everything figured out and there's no real macro shifts in the environment, businesses like McKinsey actually don't do well. When there's a ton of change, there's a ton of volatility. You need more guidance, counsel, advice, etc., To come in and help you solve problems with a natural S-curve of technology, and the fact that companies are changing at faster and faster clips, the half-life of public companies that stay in the S and P five hundred is dropping further and further. I think if McKinsey leans into that and uses that asset-based consulting model that we were talking about, I think they can do really, really well. They're the type of model in which they want disruption in business environments. They want new companies to come about. They want big Fortune 500s to think, oh my God, a startup is going to eat my lunch. If in five years, we look back... By the way, I don't think it's an accident that McKinsey's been growing really, really fast. That is directly related, difficult, changing, volatile, however you want to frame it, business environment. So I think in five years, if we look and, we, and they totally nailed it, we're going to look back and say, they really leaned into asset-based consulting as a tactic but they leaned into this idea of really developing expertise in where the world is going, where the puck is going.
1: And what about the opposite? If in five or 10 years, it's the shell of its former self, what happened?
0: I think if it's a shell of its former self, it would have stayed static as an organization. It would have gotten too comfortable. So talent wouldn't want to come work there anymore. The capabilities actually didn't reinvent, right? Their methodologies and such were outdated. The business model didn't emerge are some things that were great and not so great about the asset-based consulting model. They wouldn't have figured out how to actually tweak that. McKinsey, for as large as it is, and I can't underscore this point enough, I think anybody that runs a services business understands this. McKinsey's like six months away from going out of business at any given point in time. You always have to get new clients, you have to work on new opportunities, et cetera. Services businesses are in the hunt constantly for new engagement and new revenue. I think if they kind of sit on their laurels and they don't evolve six months is dramatic the company is not going to go bust but it's going to be a shell of itself and I think it's going to translate into elements like the price point is just too high it's not in line with the market I mean we talked about earlier that the margins of the business are high the price point is high their clients ostensibly see that value it's a free market they don't have to pay that cost and so they see the value that's coming in we can have a whole probably different conversation on the debate of that value But enough people see that value that they're paying that bill. McKinsey's going to turn 100, I think, in the next five years. So 2026, yeah, in the next five years. So if they want to continue to maintain that perch of influence and dynamism, they just have to do what they've done for the last 100 years, which is at the core, stay the same and have that North Star be their advisors for their clients at the highest level. But they've got to change up all the tactics and continue to reinvent the wheel.
1: The last question we ask everyone on the show... It's kind of a three-part question. What are the lessons of this story for builders, for executives and entrepreneurs? What are the lessons for an investor? And then what are the places people can go for further study? I'll start with the last one first. Where would you direct people to go for further study?
0: There's this really good book that if people want to lean into, it's called The Firm. And it was written, I think, maybe 10 years ago or so, five, 10 years ago. And it just captures the entire history of McKinsey. I think McKinsey is a firm gave the author of that book more inside access and more information than was probably ever publicly revealed about the firm. It's a really great book. If you if you want to learn about McKinsey, it's obviously a great place to go. But if you're just kind of a business nerd like us, there's a lot of stories around culture, forks in the road, how do you make strategic decisions, et cetera? It's a really good read.
1: What are the lessons for builders from the McKinsey story?
0: I think the number one lesson that I take, at least as a builder, is find the nuggets of where you can have enduring and sustaining advantage. And I think the nuggets of where you can find enduring and sustaining advantage are really important in any business that you're building or operating in, because we all know the gains compound. And they compound in significant and often unpredictable ways. And so I think one thing that I really admire about McKinsey as a firm... McKinsey's polarizing. Folks have positive and negative opinions and kind of the whole spectrum in between. Something I really admire and respect a lot about that institution is they're still an institution. A hundred years after their founding, they're a stalwart institution of American capitalism, certainly, but of global influence. I think the biggest lesson that I take away as a builder is if you want to build anything that's enduring, you have to be comfortable with continually changing the tactics. Their North Star actually hasn't changed. That mission statement of what they do actually has not changed in 100 odd years. And so I think that's the biggest lesson for builders. I think the biggest lesson for investors is probably related, which is if you're trying to invest in companies or invest in the right companies, find companies that have an enduring advantage and really have a real moat. The tactics are great. You can look at the people and the organizational design and capital allocation and all the tactical stuff that you should do. But It's really powerful if you're an investor and you're able to invest in an enduring business, a business that's going to be around. I think a lot of the companies we all admire that are in public markets today, some of the largest and most valuable companies in the world, the Microsofts, the Apples, et cetera, the world, they all have the same characteristic if you really think about it. These are enduring businesses that have developed really, really deep compounding moats and allow themselves to spin off new products or spin off in kind of new impactful ways because of that enduring competitive advantage.
1: Well, Ramin, this was such a fascinating discussion about a business most people don't know anything about that is not run like a business that any other business I know of, at least. So thank you so much for coming on Business
0: Breakdowns. Thanks, Jesse. It was a ton of fun. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S.com.